Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and today, this is episode eight, we're going to talk about the second part of our two-part series on the management of patients with respiratory disease. If you haven't already listened to episode seven, which was part one of this series, I recommend you go back and listen to that before you listen to this episode. In fact, to get the full combination, I would go back to episodes four and five, which are the physiology and pathophysiology of respiratory diseases, then listen to episode seven, which is the first part of the series on the management, and then come back here, and this will be the second and final part on the management of these patients. Remember, we have a new website. Please visit it and check out the episodes there at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. You can leave comments on any information you'd like to leave there at the website. You can also sign up for our mailing list by clicking in the upper right-hand corner on the link there on the website at ACRAC.com. You can email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com or ACRACpodcast at gmail.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C at A-C-C-R-A-C dot com or A-C-C-R-A-C podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I continue reading this fascinating book called Missing Microbes by Martin Blazer, a professor of infectious disease at NYU. And as you've known, if you've listened to the last few episodes, I've been giving you little bits and pieces. I'll tell you a fascinating thing he's talked about in this book is that as we have eliminated H. pylori from the majority of the population in developed countries, there has been an incredible increase in the rate of diseases such as asthma, hay fever, eczema, and inflammatory bowel disease, including Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, and even autism. Now, he hypothesizes that some of this increase in these diseases may be because we're getting rid of H. pylori. And he's actually been able to show that kids who do not have H. pylori infection have a higher rate of asthma, eczema, inflammatory bowel disease than kids who do have the microbe in their stomachs. And so his hypothesis is that we had this with us for so long, hundreds of thousands of years, that it developed a symbiosis wherein it protected us from some of these autoimmune problems. And when we, just in the very recent blink of an eye history of human history, we have now created a problem that our bodies are not able to solve. And we're seeing this sharp increase in all these other diseases. Of course, it is true that for adults as they get older, having H. pylori, especially certain strains of H. pylori, increases the risk of ulcerative disease and even of gastric cancer. And so it may be that some combination of benefits to children and harm to adults uh, leads us to some future where we either try to make sure all kids have it and then get rid of it later, or we more realistically figure out exactly how it was accomplishing the benefits that it was accomplishing and try to replicate that really interesting stuff. All right, let's get started with part two of management of the patient with respiratory disease. If you listened to episode seven, you'll remember that we talked about the initial evaluation of the patient and the preoperative preparation. Today, we're going to talk about the intraoperative management, the post-op management, and then some special issues with thoracic surgery, specifically one lung ventilation, and then some issues with pneumonectomy as a specific procedure. And I will also mention just a couple of key points for mediastinoscopy 
because there are some board-rich questions uh, involving that as well. Most of this uh, that we're going to talk about today is mostly for patients with COPD. For restrictive lung disease, really your main issues are going to be hypoxia and how hypoxic they are at baseline. They are prone to rapid desaturation because of the fact that they're already hypoxic. And then, of course, high airway pressures because of their increased airway resistance and inability to expand the chest wall. And there are real issues with getting these patients extubated because they already often have weakness, stiffness of the chest wall, difficulty with breathing and maintaining oxygenation at baseline. And patients with severe restrictive lung disease who get intubated sometimes never get extubated. That said, we're going to focus mostly, or at least most of this will apply to patients with obstructive lung disease such as COPD. Let's start with non-thoracic surgery for patients with severe lung disease. What monitors do you want? So obviously you're going to want your standard monitors. If the patient has truly severe disease, you probably are going to want an A-line because you're going to want to get ABGs and you're going to want to be aware that the patient, whether diagnosed or not, probably has some concomitant cardiac disease. And so having real-time access to the blood pressure is probably important. You want those ABGs also because there may be a large gap between the end tidal CO2 and the partial pressure of CO2 in the blood. And so looking at end tidal CO2 in a patient with severe respiratory disease may not give you that much information. So sending periodic ABGs to see what your PCO2 is and therefore also what your pH is can be important. There are several concerns specific to these patients. We'll talk about them each, but first let me list them. One is the fact that they're prone to auto-peep, also known as dynamic hyperinflation. They're more prone to bronchospasm. Their disease already gives them poor hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. They're at high risk of pneumothorax, and laparoscopic surgery carries its own risks for them, which we'll talk about. Have you heard of the Lazarus syndrome? So this is a, a real thing. It's been described in the literature. And essentially, this is what it is. A patient comes into the ED in full arrest. They are having CPR. They get chest compressions. Someone is bagging them either with a face mask or at some point they get intubated and now they're being mask ventilated through the endotracheal tube. And they continue to be refractory. They get epinephrine. They get shocks. They don't recover. And at some point, the code is called. They are disconnected from the ventilator or from the bag. Everybody walks out. And two or three minutes later, they wake up. This is the Lazarus syndrome, so-called because of Lazarus who rose from the dead. And what's happening here, most likely, now nobody knows for sure, but most likely what's happening is that these patients have severe COPD. They have an exacerbation. They arrest for whatever reason, hypoxia, whatever it may be. And they can't be resuscitated because the rapid breaths that they're getting during CPR, and let's face it, if you watch a CPR code happen, most of providers are giving about one breath every second. And what's happening is their chest, their thorax, their lungs are filling up with air and therefore pressure, and it's impeding all venous return. They essentially have zero venous return, and their heart is never going to start again. When the code is called and they're disconnected from that ventilator or from that bag valve mask, now they exhale. All of that pressure and air built up comes out. They get return of venous return to their heart, and 
their heart starts again. Now, obviously, this wouldn't happen in everyone with COPD, but it occasionally happens. And it illustrates a point, which is that COPD, severe COPD, severe obstructive lung disease, patients have a hard time exhaling. And if you don't give them sufficient time to exhale, they will develop autopeep, meaning that the air will continue to build up and build up and build up in their chest, in their lungs, and that will cause increased pressure and it will impede venous return. It would be like setting your peep at 30 or 40 and leaving it there. You would obviously get supreme hypotension and the same thing happens when they build up that pressure by themselves because you don't let them exhale. The temptation to put these patients on a rapid respiratory rate is pretty high because they often are hypercarbic. That's often what brings them in in the first place or causes them to need to be intubated, but you have to be very careful. The first thing to look for in the operating room on your monitor is the end tidal CO2 tracing. Often with severe obstructive lung disease, it will not be a nice flat topped box. The line will slope upwards and it will fall often before it seems like it's reached the peak of its slope. If you see that, be concerned that this patient is not fully exhaling. Now, the way to know this for sure is to look at your flow time curve. So this is on most ventilators, usually right there on the front screen. And you'll see that on the y-axis, you have flow. And on the x-axis, you have time. And your normal curve, flow, exhaling flow is down and inhaled flow is up on the y-axis. And so the first, you, if we're talking that we're first going to do inhalation, so we're putting flow into the patient, the line is going to go up above the x-axis, and then it will be kind of a diagonal down as the flow going into the patient decreases, and then it will hit zero until exhalation begins. Exhalation will get negative flow, and then that line, that flow, will decrease, so it will curve back up and should come back to zero, back to the x-axis. If it does not, if that line is still below the x-axis, meaning there's still negative flow, meaning the patient is still exhaling when the next breath starts, meaning the upstroke all the way up to positive flow, then that patient did not finish exhaling, meaning they are developing autopeep. If that happens, what you have to do is give them more time to exhale, which you do by increasing your IDE ratio. Most ventilators will start at a default of one to two. What you want to do is change that to one to three, one to four, whatever you need to do until you see that exhalatory flow come back to zero on your curve. If your patient becomes hypotensive gradually and you didn't think about this, then that's definitely a sign that you should check. Make sure they're not developing autopeep that's interfering with their hemodynamics. Next, let's talk about bronchospasm. So these patients patients with bad COPD often have hyperreactive airways at baseline. Now we are inducing them and intubating them, which especially if they're light can be a very irritating thing for the cords, for the carina, and can cause severe bronchospasm. How can we avoid this? Use lidocaine IV. We pretty routinely give 100 milligrams of IV lidocaine to anyone over 70 kilos. You can consider, if you're really concerned, actually instead taking a 
an applicator that has lidocaine in it and spraying it onto the cord. So you DL, get a view of the cords, and then they make these lidocaine applicators where you put them through the cords, but you're not actually touching anything. And then you squeeze down on the base of it and it sprays lidocaine all around and on the cords. And this, then you would come out, wait a few minutes, and then do your actual intubation. Other things to consider, fentanyl can blunt these, these reflexes, but it's often much more fentanyl than you would think. Most of the time we give 50, 100, maybe 150 mics of fentanyl before induction. But studies have shown that to really block these reflexes, we need at least five mics per kilo or more of fentanyl. So you're talking about giving three or 400 mics in a 70 kilo person, and that's quite a bit more than we usually do. But you could think about doing it, especially if you were confident in your ability to mask the patient. And then finally, you can use ketamine for induction. Ketamine is a strong bronchodilator. And so for patients who are at risk of bronchospasm, it's a great choice. No matter what you decide to use, remember this is not a situation where you want your patient to be right on the border of being too light when you intubate them. You want them deep so that they do not react and have severe bronchospasm. If you need to support their pressure with phenylephrine in order to be able to use a sufficient amount of induction agent, then you should do that. Hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction is one of the main ways in which our bodies naturally match ventilation and perfusion in the lungs. Patients with emphysema already have impaired hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction, and anesthesia makes it worse. Both inhaled anesthetics and IV anesthetics can impair hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction further. This can lead to hypoxia, increasing dead space, and an increasing gap between your end-tidal CO2 and your pCO2. And yet another reason why you want to check periodic ABGs so you know what your real PCO2 is. These patients can also have bullae in their lungs, which put them at risk for a pneumothorax with positive pressure ventilation. So you have to have that high on your differential. If your patient ends up with increasing airway pressures, hypotension, tachycardia, difficulty ventilating, think, did they pop a bleb? Did they now have a pneumothorax? Laparoscopic surgery can be particularly difficult for patients with severe obstructive disease. As you know from doing laparoscopic cases, patients get their abdomens insufflated with carbon dioxide. And as the carbon dioxide diffuses into the bloodstream, your PCO2, which you are judging based on your end tidal CO2, starts to rise. And that's why during a laparoscopic case, you continually turn up your respiratory rate so that you breathe off that CO2. And if you don't, you'll see your end tidal CO2 rising and rising and rising. The problem is with these patients, you can't keep turning up the respiratory rate because they need that time to exhale. And if you turn up the respiratory rate too high, you will not be able to give them sufficient time. They will start auto-peeping. So you need to be prepared to discuss with the surgeons. If someone has severe disease and they're getting too hypercarbic, you may need to ask them to desufflate and allow you time to breathe off the CO2. And remember, in addition to high CO2, the fact that they already have impaired diaphragmatic function, and now you're creating all this pressure below the diaphragm, which can impair diaphragmatic function even more, can cause real problems for these patients. In the extreme, it may be that a patient with severe enough obstructive disease should not be a candidate for laparoscopic surgery for this reason. 
Let's move on now and talk about the anesthetic technique. If possible, you want to avoid intubating and positive pressure ventilating these patients altogether. If you can do that, then you eliminate the risk of bronchospasm, at least any increased risk of bronchospasm, as well as infection and prolonged intubation. So if you can use just regional epidural spinal techniques for these patients, you can keep them breathing on their own and avoid having to intubate them altogether. Now, sometimes this is impossible. Some of these patients are so severe in their disease, they can't lie flat, in which case they wouldn't do well uh, without being anesthetized. Some have chronic coughs that keep them moving and would be interfering with the surgeon's ability to operate. Some get very anxious and would not be able to lie still or wouldn't be comfortable doing so. So certainly there are patients who you have no choice. But for patients who don't have these contraindications, if you're able to do it under spinal or under regional with minimal sedation, that may be the best way to go. As far as using sedatives, if you are going to do a MAC anesthesia, that's monitored anesthesia care, you have to be very careful, especially on oral boards. Remember, you want to be very conservative. So you definitely want to avoid using opiates and Versed together because of their synergistic effect on respiratory depression. If you are going to use Versed, then use small amounts and be very careful. Remember, it's a common oral board situation that someone with bad COPD also has bad anxiety preoperatively in the pre-op bay. First thing to do, and I said this in the last episode, is talk to the patient. Before you start giving meds on oral boards, before you start saying you would give meds, tell them you would go, try to reassure the patient, see if you could talk them down, see if you can make them feel comfortable so that you can avoid giving sedatives altogether. Now, there are downsides to the anxiety. If you can't talk them down, they can actually get tachypnic and start breath stacking just from being anxious and being tachypnic, and that can be a problem. They can hyperexpand their lungs. So if you can't get them to relax, you may need to use a little bit of anti-anxiety medication, but be cautious and go first to the old hold hands and talk and reassure. As I said, if you can do neuraxial technique, this is really preferred. In fact, if you can use an epidural in COPD patients, whether or not it's your only technique, even if you also use general anesthesia, it lowers the risk of post-op pneumonia and lowers the risk of mortality. Now, we've known for some time that using epidurals in thoracic surgery lowers the risk of post-op pulmonary complications, but there's a study by Van Leer and colleagues that was published a few years ago in Anesthesiology, and I'll put the link to it on the website, that shows that Patients with COPD who get an epidural have not only lower risk of pulmonary complications, but a lower mortality as well. Peripheral nerve blocks are also good ideas, but there are a couple of important caveats to know. One is that, and probably the most important, is that if you're doing, let's say, shoulder surgery, you may well get asked on boards about an interscaling block or a supraclavicular block. Remember, interscaling has about a 100% risk of paralyzing the phrenic nerve and the supracavicular is very high as well. What happens if you hit the phrenic nerve, if you anesthetize the phrenic nerve, is that you will paralyze the ipsilateral diaphragm. And this can produce quite a significant, around 25% reduction in FVC. Patients who are already at risk, who have severely compromised respiratory function already, are not going to do well with this situation and it's probably worth avoiding those blocks. If you paralyze the 
phrenic nerve on the right side, it's even worse because, of course, there's more lung on the right compared to the left. For induction of anesthesia, I mentioned before, you want to consider ketamine here for severe disease because of its bronchodilatory effects. If there's really major concern for bronchospasm, you may even want to consider an inhaled induction with sevoflurane because it's a powerful bronchodilator as well. You want to stay away from atomidate because it can actually increase airway resistance and propofol is fairly neutral. But if it's someone with severe respiratory disease at high risk for bronchospasm, think about ketamine or think about an inhaled induction. For maintenance of anesthesia, again, inhaled anesthetics are good bronchodilators, except for nitrous oxide, which is not a bronchodilator, though it is also not a bronchoconstrictor. Propofol, as I said, is fairly neutral. Be careful with opioids because of the potential for post-op respiratory depression. Remember, you want to use lung protective ventilation as much as you can, but you're not going to be able to continually increase your respiratory rate to keep a low tidal volume, again, because of the need for enough time for these patients to exhale. If you can avoid continuous paralysis, if you can avoid continuing to redose your neuromuscular blocker, it's a good thing because these patients are very sensitive to neuromuscular blockade and to respiratory complications postoperatively. And so rather than only have two twitches and have to reverse and hope that you fully reverse them, you don't want to be in that situation with these patients. You'd rather make sure they're fully reversed before you try to extubate them. So if you don't need to use neuromuscular blocker during the case, then it's better to avoid it. Let's move on to the postoperative period. We'll talk about how to decide about extubation with these patients, how to manage their pain, and what respiratory therapy maneuvers may be helpful. When you're getting ready to consider extubation in these patients, you want to do everything you can to maximize your chances of success. That includes complete reversal of neuromuscular blockade. You don't, when these patients, probably in, not in any patients, but especially in these patients, you don't want to be using the periorbital muscle to try to evaluate this with your train of form monitor. You really want to use the adductor pollicis. It's a better predictor of your airway musculature, airway reflexes recovery. You want to be very careful in your use of opiates. You want to give bronchodilators first if you think that they need them. You can give them through the circuit. You want to give time, sufficient time, for these patients to eliminate any inhaled anesthetic that you may have been using. It's going to take them longer than it takes most patients. And this is because in severe COPD, they have a lot of VQ mismatch, and this will delay the offloading of that inhaled anesthetic. In patients who truly have severe disease, you may want to consider taking them to the ICU and extubating them directly to BiPAP so that they have a little bit of a bridge between positive pressure ventilation and being fully on their own negative pressure ventilation. We do this often with post-lung transplant patients where just routinely they are extubated to BiPAP. I know the MICU also routinely will do this for patients with severe COPD, and it's a reasonable technique to consider. You will often get asked what your criteria are for extubation. In fact, an incredibly common oral board question is, are your criteria different for this patient than a patient having a routine lap coli or routine appendectomy? In my opinion, the answer to this is no. My criteria are not different. It may be significantly harder for this patient with severe respiratory disease to meet my criteria, 
But if they meet them, then they should be fine. So what are those criteria? The ones that you, of course, know and will memorize for written and oral boards are they need to be able to oxygenate as indicated by a PO2 greater than 65 or a SAT greater than 90, 92. They need to be able to ventilate by returning to a baseline PCO2 or a a normal PCO2 if that's where they are normally. They need to be able to have a respiratory rate less than 25 or so. They need to be able to have a negative inspiratory force greater than negative 20, and their tidal volume should be greater than 5 cc's per kilo. They should be able to follow commands. They should have sufficient strength, recovery from neuromuscular blockade, recovery from any opiates. All of these are your basic criteria. But also things you may not think about with most patients are they need to be free from high risk for ongoing bleeding. So we think about that a lot in cardiac patients. We usually don't extubate them if they're at risk for ongoing bleeding, if we're concerned that they may continue bleeding. They need to be have a normal pH and be able to maintain that pH. And they need to be able to do all of this on either no support or minimal support. If you're really concerned, you can do a T-piece trial where you actually give no support at all. But most of the time, if the patient can meet all those criteria on minimals, which we refer to as pressure support of five with a PEEP of five and 40% or less of oxygen, then they should be okay. Now, some people will meet all those criteria, but they're reliant on that positive pressure. We see this, for example, with patients with pulmonary edema. And when we take them off the positive pressure, they then don't tolerate it. So if you have that concern, then you can do a TPS trial. But you can see how a patient with severe COPD will probably have a harder time meeting these criteria. They may have an acidosis. They may be hypercarbic and not able to compensate for the acidosis by breathing off that CO2. So they may not get extubated, but it's not because your criteria are different. It's because they are having a harder time meeting those same criteria. In terms of pain management, if you have an epidural or a peripheral nerve catheter, that's fantastic because it's going to provide excellent pain control without systemic opiates. If you don't have one, then you really want to emphasize in these patients a multimodal regimen. You can use gabapentin, you can use Tylenol, you can talk to your surgeon about using Toradol, and try as much as possible to avoid opiates and the respiratory depression that goes with them. Lidocaine patches are another thing you can put around the incision that can help with pain control. There are a variety of things that you can do or your respiratory therapist can do to try to help these patients avoid post-operative respiratory complications. The goal being to prevent atelectasis and maintain good lung expansion. The cheapest and probably most efficient is incentive spirometry. Patients should be using the incentive spirometer at least 10 times an hour while they're awake. They can also get pulmonary toilet suctioning, nasotracheal suctioning, and uh, even chest physiotherapy if they have a lot of secretions and are having a hard time mobilizing them. IPPV, which is intermittent positive pressure ventilation, has not been shown to be any more effective than incentive spirometry, but does have more complications, including gastric distension, and probably should be avoided unless there's a specific uh, indication in a given patient. The number one most important thing is early mobilization. So patients who are mobilized early have a reduced incidence of pulmonary complications, reduced hospital and ICU stay, and improved mortality. All of this from getting them up as early as possible, even if it means walking them with a ventilator 
while they have the endotracheal tube in place, it's essential to get them up absolutely as early as possible and get them walking and moving. All right, let's move on to talk now about thoracic surgery itself. So everything we just talked about applies to thoracic surgery, and there's additional things that apply. So one lung ventilation has its own specific topics that we'll talk about. How do you decide between a double lumen tube and a bronchial blocker? We'll talk about that. How do you place a double lumen tube? What is the physiology of one lung ventilation and how do you deal with hypoxia? And then what do you do with that double lumen tube if you have one in at the end of the case? And then we'll talk about pneumonectomy and some special considerations there, as well as mediastinoscopy and special considerations there. If you're going to use one lung ventilation, which you're going to have to use for major thoracic surgery, you have three options to provide adequate operating exposure for the surgeon. You can use a double lumen tube, which is the most common. You can use a bronchial blocker, or you can use a single lumen tube advanced into a main stem bronchus, which is fairly rare and not that efficient. The advantages of a double lumen tube are that it is relatively easy to insert comparatively. It is easy to suction through. You can intermittently ventilate and you have access to both lungs. The advantages of a bronchial blocker are that if you need to, you can isolate just one part of a lung. So you can advance it into a subsegmental bronchus and block part of a lung instead of having to block one entire lung. And one big advantage is if you need to keep the patient intubated at the end of the case, you don't need to replace the tube. You have a bronchial blocker through a single lumen tube. You take the bronchial blocker out. You've now got a normal single lumen tube in place. Let's talk about how to place a double lumen tube. We'll start with the most common way, which is using a fiber optic bronchoscope. So there are multiple ways to do this. I'm going to tell you what I think the best way is. You're going to intubate. So you can do this with a glidescope. You can do it with a regular DL. And you're going to place the endotracheal tube, the double lumen tube, through the cords, but not advance it very far. You're just going to go through the cords, and then you're going to stop. Then you're going to place the fiber optic bronchoscope through the double lumen tube through the bronchial lumen. That's the most distal part of that double lumen tube. Once you're in there, you're going to find the carina. So you will advance your fiber optic bronchoscope until you find the carina. Then get oriented. Figure out which way is anterior, which way is posterior. You can look for the tracheal rings, and that will help you get oriented. Then, once you've identified which is right and which is left, you're going to advance your fiber optic bronchoscope into whichever lumen, whichever main stem bronchus you want your tube to be in. Almost always, this is going to be the left main stem bronchus. You should know that there are a lot of complications with placing right double lumen tubes. Sometimes you have to for surgery, for example, involving the left main stem bronchus, but there is danger of blocking the right upper lobe bronchus because of its proximity to the carina. And so if possible, we avoid placing right-sided double lumen tubes. Once you've advanced your fiber optic bronchoscope into the left main stem bronchus, you then advance your double lumen tube over the scope so that it passes into the left main stem bronchus. Then you'll come out with your scope, go down the tracheal lumen, which is the more proximal lumen, and find the carina. So now you should see the carina and you should see your bronchial lumen of your double lumen tube going into the left main stem bronchus. Now you'll advance your scope into the right main stem bronchus and look for the right upper lobe bronchus, which should be coming off at a very sharp angle 
to the right. Once you see that, that is a pretty good confirmation that you are now in the right, meaning your tube is in the left, which is where you want it to be. Then you can come back so that you can again see the carina and inflate your bronchial cuff. That's that blue cuff. And what you want to see is that it doesn't herniate completely out of the left main stem bronchus. You want to see just a little cuff of that blue balloon peeking out at the carina, meaning the bulk of that balloon is in the left main stem bronchus and occluding it. And that's where you want it to be. Now you can go back down the bronchial side and make sure that you see the takeoff of the left upper and left lower lobes so that you're not occluding either one of those with your balloon. And once you've done that, you're in good shape. A common mistake is to go in too deep with your tube to take a look down the bronchial lumen to see what you think is carina and think that you're in good shape or to at least start acting as if that's the carina. And this is a mistake. You want to be really careful. You could be down the left main stem looking at the false carina. So how do you know? Look at how deep you are. You should know that the distance from the mouth to the cords is about 8 to 10 centimeters. And then from the cords to the carina is about another 10 to 14 centimeters, depending on the person's height. So if your tube is in 26, 27 centimeters, and you think you're looking at carina, you're probably wrong unless it's a very, very tall person. More likely, you're looking down into a subsegmental takeoff. You people are afraid to pull back too far because they think they'll extubate. But remember, as long as you're in 10, 12 centimeters, you won't extubate. So you can come back until your tube is only in about 14, 16 centimeters. And now if you see what you think is carina, it is carina. So that's how you know if you're in the right place or not. There is a great chart that goes through how exactly to confirm your double lumen tube placement with auscultation uh, that I'll put in the slides, but I'll also talk you through it here. You want to remember that you can do this, and they may on moral boards ask you to tell them how you would go about doing this. And so there are a variety of ways, but this is one, and, and I think a good one. So you want to first place your double lumen tube and ventilate through both lumens. At that point, you'll listen to the left side and the right side. If you hear equal breath sounds, then you're good. You are going to move on to step two. If you hear decreased breath sounds on the right, then that means that your endobronchial, your bronchial and tracheal lumens are in the left, right? Because you're, you're ventilating through both sides. And if you only hear breath sounds on the left, then that's where both of those lumens, the tracheal and the bronchial lumen are on the left. If that's the case, you're going to come out, pull out until you hear equal breath sounds bilaterally. If when you listen, there's decreased breath sounds on the left, meaning you only hear them on the right, then you are now in the right side and you need to pull out again until you hear equal breath sounds bilaterally. Once you have equal breath sounds, you're going to clamp the tracheal lumen and just ventilate through the bronchial lumen. And what you want to hear, of course, this is assuming this is a left-sided tube, is decreased breath sounds on the right. So if you only hear breath sounds on the left when you're ventilating through the bronchial lumen, then you're, you're in good shape. You can assume your bronchial lumen is where it should be in the left main stem, and you're good. If you hear equal breath sounds, that means you're still having both of those lumens in the trachea, and you need to advance until you hear decreased breath sounds, decreased breath sounds on the right. If you hear decreased breath sounds on the left when you're just 
ventilating through the bronchial lumen, that means your bronchial lumen is in the right side and you need to come back and start over again. So once you get to the point where you're ventilating just through the bronchial lumen and you hear breath sounds only on the left, you then are going to clamp the bronchial lumen and ventilate through the tracheal lumen. Now what you want to hear is decreased, decreased breath sounds on the left because you're breathing theoretically you're only ventilating the right side through the tracheal lumen so if you hear only breath sounds on the right you're in good shape and you can go if you hear breath sounds only on the left now you've gone too far so your both lumens are in the left main stem bronchus and you have to start over again and if you hear equal breath sounds then you need to realize you're still in the trachea with both lumens and you have to start advancing again and go back to advancing and trying to hear just breath sounds in the left lung when you're ventilating through the bronchial lumen. So to summarize, place your tube, place it when you, you, you want to place it so that you think you're in the right way. So you're going to go through the cords, turn to the left, advance, and hope that you're in bronchial lumen is in the left main stem bronchus. Then you're going to listen and you want to hear equal breath sounds. If you hear equal breath sounds, then you know you may be in good shape. Then you're going to ventilate through just the bronchial lumen, and you want to hear breath sounds only on the left. If you hear breath sounds only on the left, then you know your bronchial lumen is in the left main stem bronchus. Then you want to ventilate through just the tracheal lumen and hear breath sounds only on the right. And that means you are able to isolate each lung individually. So that's how you do it with auscultation. Let's talk about the physiology of one lung ventilation. So when you're supine, your blood flow is about 55% to your right lung and 45% to your left lung because you have more lung segments in the right lung. When you put a patient with the right side down, gravity will pull more of that blood to the right lung. And so now you get up to about 75% or so blood flow to the right lung. With the left lung, it's a little less, about 70% when you have the left lung down. When you now only ventilate one lung, you're making the other lung very hypoxic because it's not getting ventilated at all, and that will cause a lot of hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction, which will push even more blood to the ventilated lung. And so when you have a patient on, a, on their side, when they ha you have them in the lateral position, you get gravity and hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction helping you. You can get up to about 85 to 90% blood flow when it's the right lung down and about 80 to 85% when it's the left lung down, which is pretty good. And that's why patients can tolerate one lung ventilation throughout the course of a case. As I mentioned in episode three, when I was talking about hyperoxia during one lung ventilation, you should not start patients on 100% FiO2. You should start them on the lowest possible FiO2 to keep them not hypoxic. And that way, you prevent damage to the lungs from high FiO2, and you also will get a feel for how much they can tolerate. If they start to get hypoxic, you do want to increase the FiO2. You definitely don't want your patients to be hypoxic, so you can increase it. If you get to 100% and they're still hypoxic, now you have to come up with other strategies. What can you do? You can apply PEEP to the ventilated lung or increase your PEEP if you already are applying PEEP to the ventilated lung. 
but you have to be careful. This can actually make it worse. Too much PEEP will actually shunt blood from your ventilated lung to your non-ventilated lung and make your hypoxia worse. If you try PEEP and that doesn't work, or if it makes it worse, you then can try CPAP to the non-ventilated lung. This is the lung that the surgeons are operating on, and you have to be very careful and communicate with your surgeons and see if they are okay with a small amount of CPAP. If they are okay with it, it can make a big difference. Now, if that doesn't work, if the patient is still hypoxic, then you have to ask them if you can resume two lung ventilation. And hopefully they're at a point in the procedure when they can pause and let you do that for a couple of minutes to get the oxygenation back up. As a last resort, if nothing is working and they can't go back to two lung ventilation, they may have to at least partially clamp the pulmonary artery on the operative side, which of course will greatly increase your VQ matching because it will prevent blood flow to the lung that is not being ventilated. At the end of the case, your options for your endotracheal tube, if you're using a double lumen tube, are to either extubate completely and just take it out. You can leave the double lumen tube in place and take them to the ICU with it in place, but most ICUs don't want patients with, with double lumen tubes in place, and it's not good. Those tubes are not meant for long-term use, and they can, they're huge, as you know, and they can cause damage to airways. You can extubate over an airway exchanger and then reintubate over that exchanger with a single lumen tube. Or you can extubate completely without an exchanger and then reintubate from scratch with a single lumen tube. You would obviously choose this approach only if it had been an easy intubation in the first place. Either way, I would recommend that you place your laryngoscope, visualize the cords, only then remove the double lumen tube, and without moving your laryngoscope, keeping your view of the cords, then replace the single lumen tube where your double lumen tube was. Let's talk about some complications specific to total pneumonectomy. So any thoracic surgery patient is at high risk for arrhythmias, but pneumonectomies are the highest risk. 25% of patients will have an arrhythmia postoperatively, and the vast majority of those are atrial fibrillation. Pulmonary emboli are very common post-pneumonectomy. Up to 7% of patients will have a pulmonary embolus, usually the traditional way from a lower extremity DVT, but they can also be from the pulmonary artery stump. And for some reason, it's more common to have this from a right pneumonectomy. Intracardiac shunting is a pretty rare complication, but it's something that just may come up on boards. It can be either from elevated right heart pressures after the afterload of the right heart has increased because of the loss of one lung and its vascular bed, or it can be in the absence of increased right heart pressure from a change in cardiac geometry as the IVC flow is now directed at a patent foramenal valley. So of course this means there has to be a, either an ASD or a PFO, but something for either right heart pressure to force blood through or for that IVC flow to be directed through. And of course, it can be corrected by fixing the ASD or the PFO. Patients who have this complication will present with dyspnea, platypnea, which means their shortness of breath is worse with standing and better with lying down. And you need to think about this if they're post-pneumonectomy. The other rare but very serious complication post-pneumonectomy is cardiac herniation. And this is when the heart actually herniates through the defect in the pericardium and the heart can torse, which as you can imagine is not a good thing. These patients present with severe hypotension, shock, chest pain, SVC syndrome, where they can't drain blood from their head because of the lack of venous drainage as the SVC is torsed, and they uh, need emergency surgery or they will die. 
And a crazy complication that I've never and had never heard of but found when I was looking into this is that you can actually have some patients start to lactate after a pneumonectomy from irritation of the anterior thoracic nerves that can actually provide those lactation signals. And that is something that would probably be a little bit of a surprise and can either go away in time or can be dealt with with blockade of those nerves. Remember to be very cautious with chest tubes after a pneumonectomy. Some surgeons won't place them at all. If a chest tube is placed, it's often a special kind of chest tube that cannot be hooked up to suction. You wouldn't want to create a lot of negative pressure in that hemithorax and increase the risk for cardiac herniation. Finally, another kind of surgery, mediastinoscopy, which is becoming more and more common. There are a couple of things unique to this surgery to keep in mind. The surgeons are going into the mediastinum with a rigid scope, which can compress the innominate artery on the right. And this can lead to what's called a parent cardiac arrest. So you can imagine if you have your monitors in the right arm and the innominate artery is compressed, you will have no blood flow to the right arm. And if you don't have blood flow, it will look like on your monitors, you will get a flat A-line tracing, no pulse ox, it'll look like a cardiac arrest. You also want to be able to let the surgeons know when this is happening because the innominate artery also provides blood flow to the brain on the right side, and you can get cerebral ischemia from prolonged compression. So what you can do is put your pulse ox and A-line in the right arm and your non-invasive cuff on the left arm. That way, if you get a flat line on your A-line, but you still have a pressure on your cuff, you know that it is this happening as opposed to a true cardiac arrest. The other thing that can be compressed is the trachea, the vagus nerves, the great vessels, and all of these can cause reflex bradycardia that can be very severe. So you definitely want to have atropine ready and be willing and able to tell the surgeons they need to stop what they're doing. Also, they are in the vicinity of a lot of very important vessels, and so sudden hypotension could be from massive hemorrhage. One thing I don't think I mentioned but should go without saying is that all of these patients having thoracic surgery, unless there's a definite contraindication, should have a thoracic epidural. There's clear evidence that patients do better with epidurals for thoracic surgery. All right, that's it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. And remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.